All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast. Admittedly, I will be the least helpful person on this podcast today because we are focusing on pharma, health, wellness, and the intersection with the marketing world. We have two unbelievably special guests this week. Uh, We have Ankit Vahia, the Executive Strategy Director uh, at Gray. Uh, Ankit is an ex-cancer researcher and consultant. He spent the last decade working across practically every aspect of the pharma industry. He has worked across and launched multi-million dollar brands globally and won a few awards along the way. And he joined us here at Gray last October. Ankit, welcome to The Five Things. Thank you, Kenny. Excited to be here and, uh, you know, talk about what should be the most interesting topic in the world, the pharma industry. Love it. And also here, we have Jesse Cates, Executive Creative Director. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So Jesse is a creative leader in the health and wellness space. He's been doing it for over a decade. He's been internationally recognized at many award shows, including the Clios, the DNADs. He's won pencils. He's won some lions. He joined us here in Gray in April. So although Jesse and I have gotten to talk to each other through these boxes that we live in, we have yet to get to be together in person, which is unfortunate. But Jesse, I'm so pumped that you are here. So, so happy to be here with you, man. Awesome. Well, this week's five things. Ankit is going to talk to us about pharma reputation getting stronger than ever during the pandemic. Jesse will tell us a little bit about the responsibility of scientific data. Ankit will then tell us a little bit about what's going to happen after COVID-19, focused on the cancer emergency. Jesse will tell us a little bit about the diversity in vaccine trials, and mostly because I'm being really going to feel left out here. Uh, I'm going to talk about how Twitter addressed the recent hacker breach. So with that, let's dive into the five things. Ankit, tell us a little bit about pharma reputation getting stronger than ever during the pandemic. Absolutely. And, and you know, this basically goes back to the fact that pharma has been the, the big bad beast for the longest time. You know, the drug prices, you know, all the hoopla around insulin, and it's been bad. And then, you know, uh, COVID comes along and suddenly the corporate conscious kicks in. You know, there's research going out, there's ads, they're discounting drugs, they're giving away insulin. And there was this like crazy survey, you know, the, the Harris poll. And what they found is the, far, the reputation of the pharma industry was up there with like healthcare workers. But, you know, some credit has to go to the industry itself beyond just a, it, it being a PR opportunity. They really did step up. You know, it was all about science winning. It was all about, you know, we're here to help people. And doesn't matter what disease you have, you will get treated. So it's it was it was a turn of events. It could have, you know, they could have just been ambiguous and being like, oh, well, we aren't going to change anything. But they really stepped up. I mean, frankly, the only reason there's hope to have uh, we hope to have a vaccine by the end of the year is the unforeseen collaboration across companies. Like they're talking to each other. They're sharing data. They really want to solve this, you know, this COVID puzzle and prevent this from happening. So, frankly, kudos to the industry and, uh, you know, good for them, you know, for well seemingly putting profits aside for some time to actually do things. You know, interestingly, it's the only industry, it's one of the few industries that hasn't experienced mass layoffs. On the contrary, they're hiring because they need more more people there. So it's been great to see and looks like it's continuing at least in the foreseeable future. Do you see uh, there being beyond this sort of a resurgence in science? Like this is bigger than just pharmaceuticals, but is this going to inspire the next generation of uh, scientific wizards among our youth? 
Absolutely. I, uh, I, I see that with my kids who are like running around asking about how vaccines are made, which is awesome because, uh, you know, science has become cool again. It's in vogue. Frankly, it should have never not been in vogue, but it's, it's, it's really great, great to see that people are, you know, realizing again that there's only one way out of the mess we're in, which is in science. You're absolutely right. So, Jesse, within that, like, and Akit, you have a perspective as well. You know, we work with a lot of pharmaceutical brands who have a perspective on this, and this is a massive opportunity for them to show their their value uh, to the world. What about non-pharma brands? Should they be engaging in this conversation? It's interesting. You know, it's a great question, and I think they absolutely should, and they have to. I think, you know, non-pharma brands can learn a lot from pharma. I think seeing that that they sort of inherently, by virtue of the the fact that they make products that are meant to like literally save lives, improve lives, you know, um, from, from a medical perspective, like that, the, the mission that they have is baked into everything that they do. So I think that if non-pharma brands can, can look to create that same kind of higher level mission, which is something that, you know, any great brand should aspire to anyway, they'll sort of be able to follow in the halo effect of, of, you know, the sort of necessity to improve humankind based on all that's going on. I love that. And you dropped this which I think now we will love because Joey will have to you know, bleep out <laughs> twice, which I love. Oh, man. Well, that, that is the perfect segue, uh, Jesse. Why don't we talk a little bit about the responsibility of scientific data? So fascinating article that, you know, sort of reference to talk about this topic. Everybody knows, like, who's been you know, following the COVID crisis and Donald Trump's reaction to it. Um, you know, there's this drug, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine White, and and both he and the the president of Brazil have you know openly talked about taking this drug and how it's you know hasn't done any harm and they're still here and yada yada yada. So there's been all this research done to sort of see whether or not you know hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine actually are effective against COVID. And the largest uh, sort of most prestigious at first uh, trials that were done were done by, with the input from this guy, uh, Dr. Sapan Desai. And he was a super driven, you know, hungry, uh, egomaniacal sort of guy, turns out, who, who supplied this enormous uh, trove of data that uh, effectively said that uh, not only does hydroxychloroquine not work effectively against COVID, but it actually increases the risk of death. And, and that article was published uh, along with another one in the uh, the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, which are two of the most you know uh, sort of preeminent uh, publications in the world, and then he committed the cardinal sin in science, which is always share your data. So when you know other researchers approached him and said, uh, "Dude, we want to take a look at what you got," he was like, "No, no, no. Uh, sorry, I can't, I can't. I can't give you any of that. It's all sort of shady and." confidential and proprietary. And I did it with this weird company I started called Surgisphere. And uh, that was like the red flag of red flags. And, you know, in short order, uh, the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine had to retract that, uh, that research. And, and that's, a, that's a real sort of devastating blow when, you know, people are looking to science to basically correct the, the BS of politics. And then, and then you see that there, that there are still these, you know, personalities in science that can that can do massive damage to also harm the credibility of, of of scientific research. And I think it just it just shows that people, you know, are still behind all of this work and that we have to take 
extra care to be diligent and look at data and use facts as facts to counter, you know, the sort of wild uh, politicking that's going on now. And, 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 a, and an event like this can be very harmful in, you know, breaking down the trust of, of science and scientists. Anke, what do you think about that? You know, it, it's like this stuff like pisses me off to know. And, you know, I, I did science, you know, studied vaccines. It's an enormous amount of work. And, you know, it's trusted science for some reason. You know, you look at the anti-vaxxer movement. It's so hard to come by. You know, we just spoke about pharma, right? They're doing this vaccine. They have the data. They've been transparent. And they have like, you know, you have like people like like this Dr. Sapan Desai, like the proverbial, you know, turn the punch bowl, muddying the water, driving mistrust. And everyone thinks it's a hoax all of a sudden. Like it, this like grinds my gears to no end. You know, it's so bad. Like you cannot do that people will die because of your greed to get a paper or start a company or to get like a vc investment in there you know it's you know this to me is like the dark side of of academics and coincidentally all that anti-vaxxer data and autism that got retracted too because something similar like it, it didn't pan out so yeah like i can go on for 30 minutes just just talking about this one thing as you can tell and i, I think it. for marketers for marketers what it teaches us is the need to really be diligent and collaborative is even is even more important in in, in sort of pharma than than re- really any other kind of promotion because the responsibility just is inherently so much greater in the kinds of you know products that we bring to market because they, they really can you know it, it can be a life or death mistake that you're making. I, I love this conversation because we at Gray talk a lot about the need for um, data and how data intersects with culture and behavior and understanding how these the push and pull of these forces lead us to better, more effective content and ideas that help change the world. So I think, you know, it we can't just be putting things out into the world. We need to be putting things out in the world that are rooted in real information and really combating sort of the fakeness that's out there. So I love uh, that we are doubling down on calling out the responsibility of scientific data and think it's really important. With that, we talk a lot about COVID. Obviously, it's what's going on right now in all of our minds and in our lives. But Ankit, tell us a little bit about what is next post-COVID-19 and how the cancer emergency is going to be a focus moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, just want to caveat it. Like, I'm not an alarmist by nature, but this is just a very... uh, it's a very important sort of aspect. So, you know, what happened in COVID, right, is people stop going for their regular testing, right? You know, if I have a stomach ache and it's not great for four days, I don't want to go to the hospital. Although hospitals quickly adapted to this idea. And, you know, when you talk about cancer and, you know, better outcomes and more survival, it really comes down to one key thing is catching it as early as possible. When you don't have a cure, you want to catch it early, you want to take it out and you want to be safe. Now, imagine not being able to do that. Imagine people not going in to get screened, right? So, you know, in cancer, there's like four stages. Stage one, two, three typically is where you can like surgically remove the the tumor. Stage four, which is you can't take the tumor out. And unless it's curable, it's it's sort of, you know, it's, 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 it's the end for lack of a better way to put it. And it's, an, you know, you're, you're just trying to get as much time as possible. But to catch it in those early stages is critical. So if patients say for this year, right, this isn't going away anytime soon, if people are afraid to go get tested, if they're afraid to go, 
get themselves screened, you know, lung screening, prostate screening, you know, your, your GI health screening. There is an entire possibility, and, and this is a phenomenon for what they say may happen, is going into next year or next couple of years, you're going to see a whole mass of patients who would have otherwise been diagnosed early are going to be, you know, who have been diagnosed in the early stages are going to now be diagnosed in late stages. And they're calling this sort of frightening phenomenon, they're calling it stage migration, where you're going to see a migration of patients to the later stage. So now imagine you would have about, say, like, you know, two, three X increase in patients who have very virulent cancer. They can't be surgically removed. They have to be treated, long hospital stays, chemotherapy, treatments, invasive treatments. The hospital system, if we thought it was burdened now with two-week ICU stays and things like that, this could get exponentially worse, not only in terms of infrastructure, but really from a, you know, like a reimbursement and access and cost perspective. Plus, just people who would have otherwise been saved and lived long lives will not have that opportunity. So this is just like, from a healthcare perspective, one of those domino effects that 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 needs to be thought about and countered. Yeah, this is, it, it's, uh, I'm not, maybe I am an alarmist, but it, I don't know. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I think that that is, you're talking about it as it pertains to cancer and the need to catch cancer early. You know, I think about, all that really high at risk group of people who are, you know, if you're always told when you reach a certain age, you have to get your colonoscopy, you have to check for this, you have to do that. And it's like, I see it with my parents. I see it with my wife's parents. You know, we see it with our friends' parents. It's terrifying to even go out of the house right now, not knowing what's there. And it's like, you know, are you robbing Peter to pay Paul? Um, you know, it, it could be. Exactly. It's, and that feels, you know, forgive me for always thinking about the marketing opportunity, but that sounds like a, a, a creative opportunity, Just Oh my God, huge. Yeah, huge opportunity. I mean, you know, I think if we don't proactively address this, you know, it, it affects everything we're talking about. We will lose the leadership position that pharma is is sort of being handed based on based on this crisis, and we have to we have to continue that proactively and make sure that we're the ones driving, you know, to to keep business back back where it needs to be, which is in the hands of a relationship between you know, caregiver and patient. And if we let it fall behind, all all the the good of, of these products that you know we're bringing to the market is is going to fall by the wayside because you know they're not getting utilized by that interaction of of, of doctor and patient. All right. Well, anyone who's listening to the one listener out there, get your test done. Don't be afraid. <laughs> um, well, this is actually, you know, we just talked about age and and susceptibility and, and really talking about on the cancer front. But, you know, I think one of the things that's come out in the news as I know there's the Oxford vaccine that's being worked on. There's, there's the Moderna vaccine that's being worked on. There's a you know, our Pfizer vaccine being worked on. There's a few things out there. And one of the things that has come out is about uh, really diversity and who's actually being tested uh, with those vaccines to see that they're going to work with all different types of genetic makeups and backgrounds. So Ankit, or sorry, Jesse, tell us a little bit about diversity in, in vaccine trials. So this is, this is a, this is just, I mean, I can't imagine a more sort of pressing issue. Everyone knows, or everyone should know, that COVID has disproportionately affected uh, minority communities. 
And it, amazingly and ironically, in a sort of terrible way, already these vaccine trials are being set up with al- almost entirely white uh, test subjects. And, and that simply is no good for so many reasons, because, you know, based on the differences that, that we have, you know, among the races biologically, we, ha- we have to make sure that we have an equal representation of, of uh, multicultural candidates, or otherwise we're not really demonstrating efficacy. And besides that, and even more important than that, we have to have a plan in place for making sure that the most at-risk communities are getting these, these vaccines first. And have early access because they're the ones being hit the hardest. It's just these are just logical things. You know, this article, you know, disappointingly called out the fact that Moderna you know, didn't proactively seek out um, uh, minority candidates or black 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 candidates for these trials. And actually, it was the National Black Church Initiative, which is a huge coalition of 150,000 uh, black churches across the country who proactively came to Moderna asking to to participate. And that's a wonderful thing. But, you know, again, it comes back to the proactivity on the part of the industry and us needing to, to, to really make sure that we're driving diversity in, 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 in these trials. And the, the challenges are, are, are vast. I mean, you know, they're, they're deeply ingrained in sort of culture of, of the 20th century. I mean, between, you know, the Tuskegee experiments, which is a horrible, a horrible thing that most people know about. If not, it's something everyone should. And, you know, the, the uh, Henrietta Lacks, um, Situation, which is just a, a, a fascinating and sort of terrible uh, situation of of researchers not being transparent with uh, patients, specifically uh, a black patient whose cells wound up being used um, to do everything from you know polio research to cancer research. I mean, Henrietta Lacks' cells have saved countless lives, you know, over the decades, and she died poor and didn't really know that she had even contributed. So you know, there's a lot of sort of precedent to overcome with uh, getting black minority communities comfortable participating in these trials. But it's a huge responsibility we have to we have to take on and we have to make sure we get it right with COVID. Yeah, it's, you know, nothing is more frustrating than this notion that diversity is an en vogue thing of the moment. Diversity in culture, diversity in business, diversity in science uh, is the most critical thing that we can push for as a species. Otherwise, we are hindering our ability to progress. Uh, and, and it is, you know, the, the, the crazy thing is if you pull your lens back and you look at what's going on in society, these things are intertwined with one another. And it is our responsibility as uh, as marketers and practitioners to understand the wide ranging impact that every single micro moment of diversity support will provide to the long term sustainability of our society and our species. So, you know, for me, we don't get we don't dive into a ton of serious topics in the five things, uh, but what we're hearing here is. The work that we are doing on the pharmaceutical front, the work that we are doing uh, in the health and wellness space is at it is at a the the most critical juncture that it could possibly be at. Um, so this is just fascinating for me. I'm I'm slightly nerding out a bit 
So I hope I know. <laughs> no, I mean, don't mind. <laughs> it, it really is. And, you know, the government's not mandating it. The FDA doesn't say you have to have diversity in trials. It is our responsibility as marketers to make sure we're pushing our clients to be the ones leading that initiative. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of the responsibility falls on hospitals because they're the recruit, uh, they're the trial sites. They're the ones that go out and get these patients in. You know, the companies are companies, you know, they'll talk to, a, they'll outsource, outsource it to a clinical research organization to run the trials. No one's doing it. It's just like, all right, let's just, what's easy? Let's just get that done. It's, it, and honestly, scientifically, it's, it's not going to give them the right data either. Fascinating stuff. Well, speaking of responsibility, we're going to move on to our fifth thing which is Twitter addressing the recent hacker breach. So if you were on Twitter about two weeks ago, you might have seen some really famous, notable people like Jeff Bezos, Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and a few others offering up some sort of Bitcoin exchange, um, which, you know, now looking at the Bitcoin market wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. But um, it was unfortunately a massive hacker breach that happened through the DM inbox of these uh, celebrity and influencer accounts. And um, it was it was a pretty stunning blow for the security of Twitter. And I think, you know, amidst COVID and everyone being at home and the the lead up to the election, Twitter has become a place where people rely on, on information coming from these influential voices. Uh, so Twitter actually finally responded and addressed what happened. And they said that they believed that up uh, to 36 of the 130 targeted accounts, um, the attackers were able to access uh, the account through the DM inbox. Um, so at, at this point, the flaw appears to have been human error with a Twitter employee, uh, posting access information in a private chat, which was then accessed by the hackers, which is, you know, never put that information into a private chat. That's a bad idea. Um, but I think, you know, more so with Twitter than any other of the platforms, they are unbelievably transparent. Um, and they work to address this kind of thing. So for the marketers out there who might be afraid to be on Twitter uh, because of this, I would say, give them a chance. They're going to be okay. They're going to help fix it. Um, Jesse, Ankit, any thoughts on that? Or or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, just despite the, these kind of breaches, like we can't shy away from engaging with platforms that are so intrinsically linked to culture. Like, <laughs> You know, there's risk and breach and, and this kind of stuff is going to happen now and then. But it, it's just so important that, that, that it doesn't scare us away from, you know, actively engaging with our brands in these spaces. Yeah, I it's, uh, it, it, there's no escaping it. You know, Twitter isn't going anywhere. Even like physicians and scientists, everyone's getting information off of their posting thoughts. It's more important. I think, you know, this will happen. And to Jesse's point, you move on. Well, this has truly been my favorite episode of the five things podcast <laughs> mine too <laughs> i have just i have uh really enjoyed getting to talk to both you ankit and you jesse uh about your expertise what is happening in the pharma world in the scientific world uh, and and it's something i hope we get to do more of there's never been a more important time for us to be having this conversation Thanks so much for having us, Kenny. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Kenny. That was awesome. But wait, we have one more thing. In a new segment we have called One More Thing, we chat about podcasts on the podcast. So here is our intrepid podcast producer, Joey Scrillo, to chat with me about what NPR's Planet Money is up to 
on TikTok. Two words you never thought you would see together, NPR and TikTok. Joey, tell us one more thing. So I love this so much. Uh, Planet Money is a twice weekly radio show and podcast that started after the financial crisis in 2008 by one of now founders of Gimlet, Alex Bloomberg. Um, Anyway, so Planet Money started a TikTok channel and it is like such a great use of the space. Uh, In a short amount of time, they make economics and economic theories sound really interesting, you know, uh, especially for like the key Gen Z demo, what they are able to do in a short amount of time is hilarious and and really engaging and entertaining. They take videos, they combine live action, animation, and some pretty rough looking green screens that are so lo-fi, they sort of match like TikTok's whole vibe. Um, there's a really cool series about medieval economics, um, a video on George Washington's expense reports, and a really, really quirky video about sunk costs. So if that sounds interesting to you, then I highly suggest you check it out on TikTok. They said in Adweek that they're really trying to um, bring journalism into TikTok, which is the perfect way to sort of be cross-platform. Um, you can get like the sort of TLDR on TikTok and then go and, you know, actually listen to a podcast about it. And then if you're really interested in it, you can read an article about it and, you know, you might even learn something. So I suggest you check out Planet Money on TikTok, uh, listen to Planet Money wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And at some point during this quarantine, they hit a thousand episodes. So there's plenty to listen to. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I think uh, Snap back in the day, and they still are doing it with NBC News, is trying to find ways to consistently... Uh, push out the news to millennials and Gen Z. I love this. I love what Planet Money is doing. I think it is brilliant. Uh, it's an interesting new use case for TikTok. And ultimately, you know, I, I think it just is going to show how we're diversifying and revolutionizing the content that we're doing. So I just want to say, awesome thing, awesome addition. I'm really excited that you brought that to us, Joey. If you have any thoughts, if you have any questions, if you want to hear any guests, you can always send us an email at podcasts at gray.com. And as always, stay strong, stay safe, stay social. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.